Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whenever you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and we guys who explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In the summer of 1893, word spread throughout Missouri regarding a special event scheduled for early August in the community of Springfield. The Springfield Democrat advised its readers that, quote, a figure familiar to nearly every newspaper reader in the United States, end quote, would visit the city, adding, quote, perhaps there is no man in the United States personally better known to the people of this country and transatlantic countries, he is everywhere written down and regarded as one of the nation's most distinguished citizens and whose life is an epitome of the most stirring events of our country's history, end quote. In August 1893, Frederick Douglass, one of the most prominent public figures and leading intellectuals of the 19th century, visited Springfield to give two speeches. It was an event extensively chronicled at the time, but one that has been largely forgotten in the present day. In this episode of Our Missouri, we will travel back to the 19th century to examine who Frederick Douglass was, why he came to Springfield, and what he advised Missourians to consider at the dawn of a new century. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey was born between 1817 and 1818 in Maryland, though most historians describe 1818 as his date. Born enslaved, he knew little of his parents and spent the majority of his early life on Maryland's eastern shore and in the city of Baltimore where he was sold and hired out to various individuals. In 1838, with the assistance of a free woman of color named Anna Murray, Douglas escaped enslavement by boarding a train and sneaking into New York City. After leaving Maryland, he adopted the last name Douglas and took on a new identity in Massachusetts, arguing that this state was more safe than neighboring New York. A group of abolitionists later purchased his freedom. He married Anna Murray, and together they had five children. Initially working as a laborer in New England, Douglas quickly became affiliated with the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. Working as an agent and an orator, Douglas soon traveled around the country on behalf of the society speaking about his experiences in slavery. And in 1845, he published his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. As his fame grew, Douglas and his family relocated to Rochester, New York, and he soon became associated not just simply with the abolitionist movement, but also with the women's rights movement, including being in attendance at the famous Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. In the 1850s, Douglas Speaking at an Independence Day celebration, famously noted the irony of a black man being asked to celebrate freedom in America and suggested to his predominantly white audience, quote, The 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn, end quote. As the Civil War drew closer, he published his second book, My Bondage and My Freedom, as well as the newspaper, The North Star. During the war, Douglas aided the effort through recruiting soldiers for the Union Army and promoting the emancipation cause. After the Civil War, he moved to Washington, D.C. to be closer to his children, and given his public prestige, he took on many prominent roles with public and private institutions in post-war United States, including the Santo Domingo Commission, the D.C. Territorial Government, Howard University, the Freedmen's Bank, and he also served as U.S. Marshal and Recorder of Deeds for Washington, D.C. and as Minister Resident and Consul General to Haiti. In addition to these various roles, Douglas spent the remainder of his life on the Speaker's Circuit. It was in this role that he traveled to Springfield, Missouri in 1893, taking a brief break from the World's Columbian Exposition held in Chicago for a local Emancipation Day celebration. 
Dating back decades before the Civil War, Emancipation Day celebrations first began in the United States to commemorate the end of enslavement with global liberation in mind. As historians Jeffrey Kerritchie, Leslie Schwalm, and others argue, once the United States stopped its foreign slave trade in 1808, gradual emancipation laws ended slavery in several northern states, and colonial slavery was abolished in the British Empire on August 1, 1834. Celebrations commemorated the joyous occasion by memorializing the gradual death of slavery. With the prevalence of slavery in the United States, formerly enslaved people annually celebrated the end of slavery in the British West Indies as a beacon of hope that enslavement would end across the nation. Missouri entered the Union in 1821 as a slave state following the Missouri Compromise of 1820 when Congress abolished slavery north of the 3630 latitude with the exception of the state of Missouri. The compromise meant that enslaved people in Missouri, being part of the Union, would have to wait more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, which only applied to states that had joined the Confederacy and were in rebellion, to be officially freed. Attempts were made throughout the war to rectify this anomaly, but it was not until January 11, 1865, that the Missouri State Convention approved an ordinance abolishing slavery in the state by a vote of 60-4. This action effectively marked the end of legal slavery in the state of Missouri. The Emancipation Proclamation served as a celebratory moment for many African Americans in Confederate territories, establishing a connection between Christmas and New Year's Day celebrations and emancipation. Food, drinking, music, speeches, and dances marked the occasion with orders reminding audiences of the near past of slavery. Out of these celebrations emerged two distinct Emancipation Day dates. September 22nd, the date of Abraham Lincoln's announcement of a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation in 1862, and January 1st, the date that the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect in 1863, though the latter date of celebration in Missouri was typically closer to January 11th, coinciding with the state's own Emancipation Edict. Another notable date chosen to symbolize Emancipation Day was August 4th. This date holds obvious ties not only to August 1st, 1834, but the choice of it can be seen to symbolize the delay that African Americans experienced in gaining their freedom as compared to July 4th, 1776. Many of Missouri's newly emancipated black communities began to embrace this August 4th date as a kind of alternative 4th of July, known as Emancipation Day or Homecoming, as compared to the later holiday of Juneteenth. Juneteenth was officially designated as a federal holiday in 2021 and commemorates the end of slavery in the secessionist southern United States. Although the holiday originated in Texas, over the years it has acquired a more general purpose of celebrating African American freedom and achievement. Despite the Emancipation Proclamation being issued in 1863, Juneteenth marks the date in 1865 when, with General Robert E. Lee having surrendered more than two months earlier, Union forces announced and enforced the proclamation in the ever-transient state of Texas. It was on June 19th that Union soldiers landed at Galveston with news that the war had ended and those who had been enslaved were now free. This subject of many Emancipation Day comes through in many of the 19th century newspapers that Missourians would have read leading up to Frederick Douglass's visit to Springfield in 1893. In 1886, George Maston gave an address in Iron County related to the history of August 4th. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we are here today to celebrate one of the grandest events in the world's history. We are also here to call attention to one of the greatest crimes that was ever committed by man. The event which we celebrate is the emancipation by England of the first African slaves in the West Indies, August 4th, 1834. Upon that day, the chains of slavery fell from the wrists of over 30,000 slaves. End quote. Only a few years later, D.W. Anthony wrote to the St. Genevieve Fair play, offering his perspective on why September 22nd, not August 4th, should be the true date of emancipation. Quote, The custom of my people to celebrate August 1st as the day for special thanksgiving among them is being discontinued, as the date does not pertain to the abolition of slavery in the United States, but to the first emancipation of slaves on the Western continent. That day was selected as the proper one since it stood as a stepping stone to the general emancipation which followed. 
It has been decided by the leaders of the race that a day more nearly related to the liberation of slaves in the United States would be more appropriate. The day recommended is September 22nd, that being the day on which the preserver of civil institutions and the defender of natural rights, Abraham Lincoln, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. That is the day we should commemorate, for it is especially concerns us. The 4th of July is a day of national celebration because of July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed. The 22nd of September should be a day of commemoration, especially by us, for on September 22nd, 1862, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, which, if the first be expected, has no parallel in the official declarations in the history of the Republic." End quote. Since the 1860s, emancipation celebrations have changed in style and, pre and presentation and allowed many members of the public to take on a more defined role in the festivities throughout the 20th century, particularly African-American women. As monumental civil rights victories continued, celebrants incorporated emancipation festivities into social justice celebrations, with some communities in the Midwest celebrating Human Rights Day, December 10, 1948, that commemorated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights created by the United Nations, or the Brown versus the Board of Education decision in 1954, which integrated schools in the United States. Regardless of the occasion, Emancipation Day celebrations continue to promote hope for a more equitable future and remind us of a more cautious past. Presently, there are countless events held across the state in various communities and, and counties. In the Ozarks, in addition to personal and private celebrations, there are two major annual Emancipation Day events. In Springfield, Park Day Reunion is held in Silver Springs Park during the first weekend of August, and a neighboring Joplin Park Days is held in Ewart Park during the first weekend of August. Though not yet officially known as Park Day in Springfield, the Emancipation Day festivities that Douglas attended in 1893 nevertheless served as a foundation for these later celebrations. When word first circulated that Frederick Douglass was coming to southwest Missouri as part of the Emancipation Day events, there was confusion regarding the location of his visit. Some newspapers identified Springfield as the location, while others informed readers that Douglass would visit nearby Carthage. This confusion was largely connected to Reverend J.W. Anderson, who had connections in both cities. Initially, Anderson, who served as a pastor of Bethel Baptist Church, told Carthage residents that Douglas would arrive in time for the August 4th festivities and would be joined by John R. Lynch, an auditor for the federal government in Washington, D.C., C.H.J. Taylor, editor of The American Citizen, a black newspaper based in Kansas City, and James Milton Turner, a formerly enslaved St. Louisan who had served as minister to Liberia in the 1870s. As the date grew near and rumors suggested that Douglas was scheduled to appear in Springfield, not Carthage, the Carthage Press noted that Reverend Anderson's, quote, whereabouts has not been known, end quote, until a report emerged that he had been working with miners in neighboring Kansas. When Emancipation Day had come and gone, that same newspaper informed its readers that, quote, Fred Douglas and the other noted speakers were transferred to Springfield, and all that was left for the Carthage Afro-Americans was to have a good time in a quiet way, end quote. Later, after Reverend Anderson was accused of embezzling funds from Bethel Baptist Church, a charge which he denied, he offered his perspective on the situation. Quote, I wanted to bring Fred Douglas to Carthage, but I couldn't raise the money, and so I took him to Springfield, where the people were readily responded to my solicitations. End quote. When Douglas confirmed his visit near the end of July, the Springfield leader proclaimed that his public appearance would be, quote, the most important event of the kind in the history of this section of the country, end quote. As Douglas prepared to depart from Chicago aboard a Frisco railroad train, Springfield residents and those in neighboring communities made their own arrangement. When the fateful day arrived, Douglas' train was greeted by a throng of spectators at the depot. A group that included Reverend Morris, Reverend Anderson, Reverend Brown, and a band escorted Douglas to the Metropolitan Hotel. Once securing his room, Douglas met with several local dignitaries as well as members of the press. The Springfield leader noted that Douglas was, quote, a rather large man, has a fine physique, and his hair is white as snow. He talks eloquently in private conversations, and is thoroughly familiar with all great questions which are agitating the public mind today, end quote. 
These subjects, according to the press, included but were not limited to the rights of women, the status of people of color in the United States, and the monetary debate over gold and silver. Douglas gave the first of his two speeches at Springfield's Zoological Park. The Lincoln School Band regaled the crowd before the great orator stepped to the podium. For nearly two hours, the crowd of roughly 3,000 heard Douglas highlight some of the same national issues he had previously discussed with the local press. Turning towards his own experiences as an enslaved person, Douglas asked the audience to compare American society in the 1890s to what it had been during slavery, offering a view of the progress so far made. At the same time, however, he did not overlook the challenges faced by people of color in the 1890s. He called on those in the audience to think of the golden rule and religion in their everyday lives and to consider a person's soul, not the color of their skin. While his first speech had seemingly been a rousing success, Douglas's evening address was more controversial, but not for his words, rather for the audience. While his afternoon speech had been open to the public for a small fee, his speech at the Grand Opera House was more expensive, with seats going for upwards of $1. Later, of war words in the press accused organizers of seeking to monetize Douglas's appearance over the objections of community members and Douglas himself. As such, the press was quick to point out the pockets of empty seats at the Grand Opera House as compared to the multitude at the local zoological park. Just as quickly as he arrived in the Ozarks, Frederick Douglass departed for Chicago. Traveling through the northern Ozarks, his train stopped in St. Louis before continuing on to the Windy City. While in St. Louis, he told a reporter that, quote, I never before saw so many white people present at, my, at any of my meetings south of Mason and Dixon's line as there were at Springfield yesterday. The citizens of Springfield are among the most liberal-minded people I have ever encountered. End quote. A little more than 18 months after his visit to Springfield, February 20th, 1895 to be exact, Frederick Douglass passed away at his home in Washington, D.C. Back in Springfield, residents quickly got to work planning memorial services for the famed orator. At the Hall of the Equal Rights Council, number 316, members passed a series of resolutions declaring that, quote, it is only a just tribute to the memory of the departed to say that in regretting his removal from our midst, we mourn for one who is in every way worthy of our respect and regard, end quote. A few days later, a community event was held at Gibson Chapel with an overflow crowd. Choirs from Gibson Chapel, Pitts Chapel, Washington Avenue Baptist Church, and Benton Avenue AME Church filled the building with somber music. In reflecting on Douglas's life, Reverend Gibson compared the legendary orator to biblical and historical figures and noted that, quote, he is the greatest man America ever produced on account of his hardships he endured and conquered, end quote. Concluding his address, other community leaders arose to speak to key moments in Douglas's life, including S.H. Randolph, who proclaimed, quote, The 19th century has produced its quota of brilliant orators, and among that number that have molded public sentiment and shaped the destinies of human affairs, none stand out more prominently than Frederick Douglass. Nature blessed him with a commanding figure, a resonous voice, and the institution of slavery gave him his theme, end quote. Randolph concluded his speech declaring, quote, but the sage of Anacosta is gone. His eyes will flash with fire no more. His lips are closed and his tongue stilled. But his eloquence will remain forever. Upon whom will the mantle of his eloquence fall? End quote. Near the end of the ceremony, a series of resolutions were read, including the following. Quote, Resolved that the people of Springfield, Missouri, tender their heartfelt sympathy to the bereaved family and relatives of the deceased and that a copy of these resolutions be sent to them, that they may know that we are not unmindful of the fact that a great man has been called from the stage of action to that blissful shore where all is peace, love, and everlasting happiness. End quote. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri Podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash 
Hour-Missouri. <laughs>